Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ellie Rosen, a native Yiddish speaker. Ellie was raised in the, the Hasidic community of Brooklyn. He now serves as the managing director of New Yiddish Rep, as well as a Yiddish cultural consultant for film and television. Past credits include producing, translating, and appearing in Hanuk Levin Squared, as well as appearing in Waiting for Godot, Awake and Sing, the New York Times critic pick God of Vengeance and Rhinoceros in his own critically acclaimed Yiddish translation, as well as his one-man show, The Drunk Curate, uh, The Drunk Cantor, excuse me, based on the monologues of Maurice Schwartz. Film TV credits include the Netflix hit series Unorthodox, Minion, and The Binding of Itzik, which is upcoming. Welcome, Ellie. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me today from um, each of our remote locations. I'm here uh, at home in the hills of Western Mass, and I think during this pandemic you're sheltering in New York? Yes, I'm actually at the Yiddish house where I live. Ah, wonderful. Um, Well, you know, again, also before we start, thanks for all of your work in Yiddish theater. Um, I have been to many of your performances over the past many years, and took much away from each one of them. Um, So thanks for all of your work. And before we jump into talking a little bit about Unorthodox, which has also had me um, on the couch watching nonstop, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your background is, your Yiddish, and sort of how you ended up coming to acting. Yes. Uh, so, um, obviously, I'm a, I'm a native Yiddish speaker. I grew up in a Hasidic household in, in Borough Park, Brooklyn. And uh, interestingly, um, I think unlike some of my peers, uh, we spoke a fairly old school, pure Yiddish, as opposed to kind of the, the quote unquote plain Yiddish of uh, some of my contemporaries. And um, I, I think the reason for that might be because I, um, my parents did not, were not, uh, did not speak Yiddish at home. Um, they both were born in Hungary, but came to the States as infants. And, and uh, in my father's case, his parents uh, insisted on speaking English at home. And in my mother's parents spoke a mixture of Yiddish and Hungarian, but she spoke near just about almost uh, exclusively to them in Hungarian. But they both made a kind of concerted effort when they got married to have a Yiddish speaking home. Uh, so when we spoke Yiddish, we spoke Yiddish. Um, it was kind of a, a pretty old school, um, purist Yiddish. I mean, obviously a Hungarian Yiddish, and there was plenty of uh, basic American terms mixed in, you know, like sink and refrigerator and air conditioner. But but by and large, it was it was a it was a pretty pretty good Yiddish and. Um, we grew up with kind of that sense of, of pride in Yiddish. And um, later on in life, I was doing, you know, kind of on my own journey, a lot of soul searching. I've moved pretty far away from the Hasidic community that I grew up in. Um, and for a time, didn't, didn't really use my Yiddish. Uh, certainly not in my daily life, but also um, it was kind of packaged with all the things that I 
moved away from. And so I didn't really see a way back to that uh, till about four years ago when um, I was kind of floundering professionally. And uh, I, was, I was a lawyer at the time, but was kind of out of work. And I, I uh, was trying to do my own thing and started working with a couple of friends of mine, um, Malky Goldman and Melissa Weiss, um, who are also ex-Hasidic and they were actresses and they were starting their film production company. So I was their lawyer trying to help them start out and get their contracts done and things like that. Uh, but I really felt this strong urge to do something creative. Um, and I mentioned it to them and about a couple of weeks later, they, they told me about this acting, immersive acting, immersive experimental theater workshop for, for ex-Hasidic Yiddish speakers. Um, by Milena Kartovsky Ayak from Paris, uh, a wonderful Yiddish artist uh, in Paris who, who does, she directs, she acts, she sings, uh, klezmer, she's an absolutely brilliant artist. Um, so I did that immersive workshop with her um, and in the process kind of really returned to my Yiddish roots and kind of worked through whatever it is I needed to work through got bitten by the acting bug. Uh, we had this kind of final piece to our workshop that was open to the public. And uh, David Mandelbaum of New Yiddish Rep attended that. And then he kind of just recruited us all on the spot for the, for the theater. Um, and that was when I joined New Yiddish Rep, joined the world of Yiddish theater, and really kind of rejoined the world of, of Yiddish. And, and Yiddish art. Um, and I've been active in that space ever since. So following that, how did you come to be involved in the production of Unorthodox? So um, once I got involved in uh, New Yiddish Rep, I was, um, David had asked me to translate um, well, rhinoceros. And um, so I guess I started kind of establishing myself as a translator and started getting outside requests. And um, also a, a friend of mine, also from New Yiddish Rep, also ex-Hasidic, Luzo Tversky, uh, was doing an episode of um, High Maintenance on HBO. And um, he asked me to consult on that behind the, behind the camera and be kind of the, the Yiddish translator and consultant on that. Um, and I guess that was my first entree into that world. And um, since then, I've gotten a number of gigs relating to that. And uh, most recently, in, um, it was about Oct October of 2018, when I got an email from Alexa Karolinski, the, the co-creator of the show, um, she had heard about me from another ex-Hasidic friend who happened to be doing a year of a Fulbright study in Berlin. And um, they met there. She knew him as an ex-Hasidic Yiddish speaker. And she asked him if he had anybody that he could recommend that could take on a project like this. Um, and, uh, he recommended me. And we're very glad that he did. <laughs> um, 
So um, I think probably everybody listening has seen unorthodox, but there may be a few of you listeners out there who haven't yet. Um, but um, I wonder how hard it was for you, and maybe it wasn't at all, to sort of, I hope this is the right word, detach personally in terms of the consultation that you did. It seems like it's a story that has that would sort of hew close to you a bit, um, and you're also helping to represent the um, the Hasidic community, et cetera. Were there challenges to that? Um, yes, there, there, there are certainly always challenges to that. Um, I mean, one thing you, you pick up pretty early on as an actor is, is to kind of separate your own, your own self from, from the character you're working on. Um, and in this case, um, my character, the rabbi, um, is well probably the only true villain of the story and um you know everybody else is a victim of the system the rabbi is the system in this respect um but of course in in playing the rabbi for example you do that wholeheartedly uh, you believe in what you do your character certainly believes that that he's right um and um that he is doing God's work and his mission is holy and his ends justify the means. Um, and so you, you want to kind of have that detached um, objective eye throughout, although um, at times uh, it was actually fun to kind of insert little, little Easter eggs that, that harken back to very specific things that I experienced or things that I observed um, customs that are, unique to my own family, for example. Um, so it's, it's, it's a balance. Um, there's certainly that, that uh, temptation to personalize everything. Um, but obviously you don't want to do that. You want to make it as, as universal as possible while still maintaining a certain level of specificity. Uh, I, I mean, I think that, you know, personally, <laughs> uh, it felt that that was the case. I mean, I think it was really beautifully done um, and portrayed a world in a very accessible way um, so that you saw both sides of the story, as it were. And the, uh, curious, again, to know if there was, um, and I'm sure that this is always the case, a tension between storytelling and authenticity. Um, where do you, you know, sort of where do they intersect intersect in, in the production and what are some of those challenges working through it? Um, and you were also working with, we should say, um, a story that had already been, it, it, this was based on the book. Right. Uh, yeah. so I mean, there are, there are a lot of different kind of, um, creative points, I guess that, that, that we were trying to score, um, so to speak. And uh, um, I mean, for example, I think this is as much a story about uh, what it is to be a, a Jew in Germany today as it is about uh, a young woman leaving the Hasidic community of Williamsburg. Um, uh, the, the two creators of the show, um, both being German 
Jews. Uh, one of them is uh, originally from New York. She's been living in Germany for the last 20 years or so. Uh, that would be Anna Winger. Alexa Karolinski was actually born and raised in Germany and lives in LA now. Um, but they both wanted to do something about being Jewish in Germany and the kind of what that means um, as a modern person today. So um, they thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to kind of portray that through, through Esty's eyes um, and through her own experiences. Um, so there was definitely an angle there, which is one of the reasons why it departs so sharply from, from, the, from Deborah Feldman's story in that respect. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we had to take some creative license with respect to the, uh, Berlin of today with respect to Estes experiences in Berlin. I mean, um, you might say that's a, a very utopian view of Berlin, um, and not all that, well, real, um, it, it's kind of an aspirational view of what of what the artist kind of bohemian culture is in Berlin. And it's interesting because having been there for six months to shoot this project, um, I experienced some of that myself. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wandering a little bit. No, no. I mean, I, I, I found that fascinating that she ends up in Berlin um, because her mother is there, um, who has also left the Hasidic community, and falls in with a group of musicians, um, and they each have different backgrounds. It's it's fascinating because it gives you different entry points from which to explore this, and each of the characters, I think, brings so much to that conversation. Yes, and the and the actors behind those characters have also such disparate and interesting um, paths. Um, to, to coming together. I mean, take, for example, uh, the character of uh, Professor Hafez, who's, um, he's actually um, an Israeli Arab of, of um, um, very wide renown in Israel. He is uh, probably one of the best known Israeli Arab actors in Israel. Uh, his name is Yusuf Suede. Um, and I, I got to know him during, during shooting the during shooting and on set, and uh, what a what a wonderful wonderful person. Um, and then there's the the actor who plays um, I can't believe this. I'm anki- I'm blanking on the character's name. Describe the character. Uh, um. I want to say, I want to say Salim. Um, he is actually a Syrian refugee, mm-hmm. um, having himself um, escaped Syria when he was 15 um, and made his way to Berlin on his own, became an actor on his own. Um, and it was extraordinary just hearing his stories on set seeing his reaction and how he was kind of taking in and learning um, so much about, about Jews and Judaism. Um, and, this, and this kind of held true throughout. I mean, obviously the, the German crew um, had, had their own kind of 
perspectives and experiences to bring to the table and so on and so forth. So uh, not only is, is this kind of diverse group of characters, um, you know, important on camera. I mean, it was, it was really important behind the camera as well. So. Yeah. Imagine it would be a journey for all of you from starting this to finishing it um, in terms of the development of the characters. And again, um, where it, where it takes everybody from where they've come from. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, Jeff's story is, is pretty incredible. Jeff Wilbush, who plays Moshe. Um, he himself came from Me'ah Sha'arim, uh, where he, in, in Jerusalem, where he grew up in arguably the most fundamentalist um, Hasidic ultra-Orthodox sect. And, uh, you know, even more so than than Deborah Feldman herself would have experienced, if if it's possible to quantify that. Um, and he had run away when he was, you know, right after his, his bar mitzvah, um, ends up becoming a, well, a well-known actor in Berlin, nobody even realizing that he's Jewish, let alone ex-Hasidic, uh, somehow gets wind of this project through his agent um, and kind of shows up you know, uh, oh, I, I'm a native Yiddish speaker. And of course, um, the, the creative team was very skeptical about that because they had already completely given up on finding any Yiddish speakers, uh, any Yiddish speaking actors um, in, well, in Europe, let alone in Germany. And um, he shows up and he starts crying. This is my life story. Um, and then, of course, we, we met uh, and uh, got to work together and became incredibly close. I mean, we text just about every day. And then he, for the first time in his life, met this entire community of, of people who left the Hasidic community and forged this incredible bond. Um, and that was all made possible by this project. And, and I think... That it's safe to say that this project was really committed, um, and bringing you on certainly speaks to that. Committed to doing this um, in a very authentic way, um, and I can think of, you know, the wedding scene sticks with me because on so so many levels, I can imagine what went into choreographing that scene. I mean, just the costumes, the traditions, the rituals. Um, so much is conveyed there. Um, a lot is conveyed in Esty's facial expressions, even without speaking. So can you talk a little bit about how you approached scenes like that with a director um, and, and how you made these dramatic, but also again, they're infused with details that are authentic details and are so important to the authenticity and telling of the story. Right. Well, uh, I think one of the amazing things is, and this speaks to the, to the, um, um, really com- to the commitment by the, by the writers to, to make this, to make something truly authentic and representative is that, you know, we, we all sat down together. Uh, we actually had separate creative meetings um, just for the wedding. Um, I think three or four of those where the entire creative team sat in one room and, and we discussed 
the wedding. And uh, this included my giving uh, a PowerPoint presentation on Hasidic weddings, uh, where I gathered clips, whatever clips I can find on YouTube of various, mostly um, Hasidic rabbinical weddings, because those are usually publicly available and, and they have video of that, whereas kind of private Hasidic weddings are less likely to have that kind of footage. Um, and uh, you know, I, I kind of did broke down the wedding into like seven steps and went through it point by point, explaining what happens at each step, what the significance of that step is, and um, would show them pictures or video clips of those, of those steps to kind of actually kind of take them there and give them a feel of what it's like. Uh, the director, I believe, uh, also visited, uh, also attended uh, Hasidic wedding in Williamsburg. Um, so that was, that, was, that was a very important part of the process. Um, in addition, when we actually wrote these scenes, um, instead of the writers writing the scenes and then me kind of trying to shoehorn the rituals into the scenes, uh, we went about it the other way around. Um, you know, I kind of laid out the wedding as it would happen in real life, step by step. And then we tried to find where in those steps can we further the narrative of the story? Um, and we kind of reverse engineered the story into the wedding rather than the other way around. Um, and uh, the Chopin scene, um, the director had told me my marching orders were, um, I had to write a Chopin scene that we can shoot in five minutes. And, um, five minutes of, of uh, screen time, obviously. It would take much longer than five minutes to shoot it. But um, knowing that the typical Hasidic wedding takes about 45 minutes to an hour, um, it was a tall order. We, get it, we distill it down to five minutes in a way that you kind of get the sense of it. And then they tell us, well, actually, you're only getting about a minute, a minute 40 of screen time in the episode. Um, so we had to distill it down even further. Um, uh, but still, you watch those minute 40 and you get a feel of actually having experienced an entire chuppah, which is, which is incredible. And it speaks to the, uh, um, the creativity of the writers, the creativity of the director, of the cinematographer, of everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, there is something that's, um, you feel like you've been in, in this scene for a long, long time. And yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that it's that a minute and what was it? 40 something seconds. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it might even be shorter. I mean, it's even shorter after editing, but that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's brilliantly done. Um, the other, the other scene, and I'm sure that you get this question a lot that was, um, really, um, amazing was amazing. I'm, I don't want to attach it. Um, were the, 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 you know, sex scenes. Um, also the, the, the coach I thought was a fascinating character. The woman who tries to help SD deal with, um, marital relationships and all that, that attends that. And right. also the, well, and, and Yankee's mother, just this, like everything that's wrapped up into this 
was incredible. Yes, uh, we called the coach a, a Kala teacher, and mm-hmm. um, she she fulfilled well two two roles there uh, as Kala teachers would normally do. Um, so they they are pretty much the your only source of sex education uh, before the wedding, and you know literally. Hasidic people are usually engaged from, you know, an average of eight, nine months, uh, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, up to a year, uh, depending how old they are when they first get engaged. And um, they put off the sex ed until the very last minute. Uh, so usually you'll have your, your Hasidic class or your Kala class um, weeks before the wedding, if not days before. Um and uh, so, and you kind of learn the bare minimum, if that much. Um, and I've I've had um, for me it was a little bit of a challenge because I've only attended cousin classes. I've never attended college classes, obviously. Uh, so the writing of that was a little bit challenging. But um, I, I kind of had to use my imagination a little bit. Um, but I did hear back from other people who said basically this is word for word uh, what they experienced. Um, but then, of course, after the wedding, if there are any issues, you know, the only person you can speak to about sex is your college teacher, right? So she comes back after the wedding to try to help her uh, with her vaginismus. But um, that would be kind of her soul. Um, source of information and also the only place, only person she can, she can go to, uh, for, for advice in that regard. Um, so obviously a very important character in that respect, but, um, I also loved what, what Michal Birnbaum brought to that character. And I think she really made it special. Yeah, it, it is. And also, um, all of this as a viewer, helped me to really sort of see for the, in some ways for the possibility of the relationship between Esty and Yankee. And also it brought out all of the attendant sort of issues um, for Esty um, as, as a, as a woman, as a person, as somebody who wanted to maybe move beyond this constricted world that was closing in on her in so many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and Yankee goes through a similar journey on his own as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting to watch that evolve from there. Um, and before I let you go, probably two quick questions for you. Um, was there one moment in the production where for you, it sort of all, you were like, Oh, this is, this is so working or that was particularly um, memorable for you where you felt like it was going in a direction that you had hoped for? So many. I mean, um, I was, I, I think originally uh, nobody expected um, my involvement to be that extensive because I mean, on my part, um, I had never done a project this big. Um, I had no idea what I was in for <laughs> and nobody else. Mm-hmm. Did either. Um, 
And uh, I think initially the plan was for me to be, um, you know, obviously working a lot in pre-production, coaching the actors. Um, then at some point, oh, um, you know, I'll also have to be on set uh, to listen for Yiddish dialogue. So I need to be on set whenever they're shooting with Yiddish dialogue. And then at some point we realized very quickly that scenes without dialogue uh, also required all kinds of cultural knowledge. Um, anything from like just making sure they kiss the mezuzah when they walk through the door to the way they move, the way they sit, um, the set design, the costumes, just making sure everything is right. Um, and then ultimately uh, we realized very quickly that uh, they needed an English dialect coach as well uh, so that the accent is right. And again, just to make sure that every aspect of the character kind of rings true. So I ended up being on scene, on set, behind the camera uh, for probably 95% of the scenes. Um, and um, there were so many times when uh, just watching it happen, uh, because it's, you know, it's one thing to see the words on the page and it's a whole other thing uh, to see what happens once the directors and the actors get involved. Um, uh, there were so many moments, I mean, from, from kind of the biggest to the smallest, the, the biggest, obviously, I have to say the chuppah scene, which was outdoors on the roof of this wedding hall, which, which by the way, is an, is an Arab wedding hall in Berlin, which interestingly, um, perhaps obviously, is almost aesthetically uh, identical to what a Hasidic wedding hall in Brooklyn would look like. And um, so, we're, and we're shooting this this gorgeous chuppah scene at night on the roof. Um, it was at, and and we had to do, of course, uh, all kinds of takes. Um, so we're basically singing the chuppah song and watching her walk down the aisle uh, dozens of times, um, and it never got old. It was just, and uh, I, I think also having that many extras um, who were so heavily invested and so participatory in, in, in the process, because generally you have extras on set and they're basically glorified set pieces. They're told to just stand there and they just stand there for hours. But in this case, every extra was a guest at the wedding and was singing and was dancing and was actually participating. Um, and I think everybody walked away from this experience just being um, completely, completely overtaken by it. Um, it, it, there, there was just, I don't know when that point was, but there was a point where it was no longer a uh, fiction and it was an actual, it just, you were at, at an actual wedding. Um, but there were, there were scenes, you know, these small intimate scenes as well that, you know, all, all the scenes between Esti and Yankee, um, uh, you know, Scenes between Esti and Malka, scenes with Esti and 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 Bobby, the grandmother. I mean, that scene with the phone. Who, myself, having left the Exo City community, and of, of course, I have I have a, a wonderful relationship with my parents. Um, so I, I I couldn't tell you what it's like for for your parent to hang up the phone on you. I don't think that ever happened to me in my life. But I have so many friends who've gone through that. Um, that is 
arguably the most powerful scene in, in the show. Um, and of course, uh, the actor who plays the grandmother, Adina Daron, is just, uh, she's a veteran of, of Israeli theater and cinema and was just incredible to work with. Um, probably the most undersung performance in the entire show. Um, and, and, you know, she's just like anybody's grandmother. Um, just so perfectly cast. Uh, so there are all kinds of moments. Um, so many moments. And um, I, was, I was just lucky to be there for all those moments. Um, and again, briefly before I let you go, was there, is there some takeaway that you would like viewers to have? after watching the series? Yes. Um, so obviously uh, we tried in so many ways not to kind of spoon feed uh, the information or the experience and kind of let the viewers draw their own conclusions as to anything from like, uh, well, obviously what happens to Esty now, but also um, why she left. Um, and, you know, was she, was she even, was that decision even correct? Um, and what about the family that she leaves behind? Um, and, and what are they going through? Um, and, and these are all very important points because, um, like you said, uh, there are two sides to every story. Um, and... In many cases, as, as is true in my case, um, I've maintained a wonderful relationship with my family. And I think um, it's becoming more and more common for that to happen. And um, obviously the, the dream is to kind of build these bridges and maintain these bridges. And um, people should have the freedom to uh, make their own choices and live freely and still be with their loved ones. Um, but at the same time, even when Esty leaves, even when she is in Berlin, even when she is kind of slowly shedding her outer Hasidic garments, she is still having this complicated relationship with her past. And she's still not rejecting her past out of hand. And she's still not rejecting God. Um, because ultimately, again, that should never be, that choice should not be forced on anybody. Um, and uh, it's okay to want to live life according to your own terms. And it's also okay um, if you have a complicated relationship with, with God and with Judaism. Um, well, yes. I, yeah. Um, if we were in the studio together, you would see me nodding my head. I think, I think what you've all achieved in this is to tell a story responsibly, beautifully. It allows for us to understand all sides of it, and and um, and value everybody's personal relationships with all that they're engaged with in life. And I think it's a just it prompts a lot of really good. Um, conversation. Um, and it was, again, beautifully and sensitively 
and I think very responsibly done um, so that it allows for that. Um, so I, I thank you and I thank everybody for bringing this um, bringing this to us. Um, it's, it's a great series. And for our listeners, the show is unorthodox. It's available on Netflix if you haven't seen it encourage you to watch it um, and to learn more about um, Ellie and his work visit Ellie Rosen E-L-I-R-O-S-E-N dot net and thank you Ellie for this work and all the other work and work to come um, and I look forward to seeing you in a live performance in the in the not too distant future I hope thank you so much Lisa and it's always a pleasure to talk to you okay thanks again for joining me today Take care. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For more on Yiddish and Jewish culture, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. Today's podcast was coordinated by Sam Brivik and produced by Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.